can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from Vinnie Paz singing Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find out more at youcan'tbeneutral.com. There you'll find all the back episodes for You Can't Be Neutral, as well as some links to make a donation and links to send me a message. First up for this episode is a piece written by Natasha Leonard, published at TheIntercept.com. A week after Hamas's October 7 massacre, by which time Israel's all-out assault on Palestinians in the Gaza Strip had killed thousands of civilians, the online editors of the prestigious Harvard Law Review reached out to Rabea Egberia, two online chairs, as they are called, had decided to solicit an essay from a Palestinian scholar for the journal's website. Egberia was an obvious choice, a Palestinian doctoral candidate at Harvard's law school and human rights lawyer. He has tried landmark Palestinian civil rights cases before the Israeli Supreme Court. Egberia submitted a draft to 2,000-word essay by early November. He argued that Israel's assault on Gaza should be evaluated within and beyond the, quote, legal framework of, quote, genocide. In line with the Law Review's standard procedures, the piece was solicited, commissioned, contracted, submitted, edited, fact-checked, copy-edited, and approved by the relevant editors. Yet it will never be published with the Harvard Law Review. Following an intervention to delay the publication of Egberia's article by the Harvard Law Review president, the piece went through several committee processes before it was finally killed by an emergency meeting of editors. The essay, The Ongoing Nakba, would have been the first from a Palestinian scholar published by the journal. In an email to Egberia and Harvard Law Review president Aspara Iyer, Shared with The Intercept, online chair Tasha Shariari Parsa, one of the editors who commissioned the essay, called the move an unprecedented decision. Quote, As online chairs, we have always had full discretion to solicit pieces for publication. Shariara Parsa wrote, informing Egberia that his piece would not be published despite following the agreed-upon procedure for blog essays. Shariara Parsa wrote that concerns had arisen about staffers being offended or harassed, but, quote, a deliberate decision to censor your voice out of fear of backlash would be contrary to the values of academic freedom and uplifting marginalized voices in legal academia that our institution stands for. Both Shariara Parsa and other top online editor Sabrina Ochoa told The Intercept that they had never seen a piece face this level of scrutiny at the Law Review. 
Shariara Parsa could find no previous examples of other pieces pulled from publication after going through the standard editorial process. Another editor who spoke on the condition of anonymity echoed the view that Egberia's treatment is unprecedented. The anonymous editor said that based on their research, Israeli scholars had been well represented in the pages of the magazine, but not Palestinians. The editor also said that they could find no previous examples based on their research of a publication-ready article being pulled. In one of his responses to the editors, Egberia wrote, quote, This is discrimination. Let's not dance around it. This is also outright censorship. It is dangerous and alarming. According to emails shared with The Intercept, as well as Shariara Parsa and Egberia's accounts, Iyer at first delayed the essay's publication over what she said were safety concerns and the desire to deliberate with editors, according to an email from Shariara Parsa to the author. However, Iyer also said in meetings that, quote, she was personally unwilling to allow the piece to be published. Iyer responded in the email chain with Egberia that there were numerous inaccuracies in the rejection email, claiming the story had gone through the normal processes and that the piece had been rejected based on the requested publication timeline. Following requests from over 30 editors, an emergency meeting of the entire journal body was called. After nearly six hours, the more than 100 editors voted anonymously on running the piece or not with a strong majority voting against publication. Quote, Like every academic journal, the Harvard Law Review has editorial processes governing how it solicits, evaluates, and determines when and whether to publish a piece, the Harvard Law Review said in a statement. An intrinsic feature of these internal processes is the confidentiality of our 104 editors' perspectives and deliberations. After a full-body meeting and vote of the entire membership last week, substantial majority voted not to proceed with publication. Entirely run by students, Ayer and Shariari Parsa, like, like Egberia, attend Harvard Law School. Harvard Law Review is a well-known launchpad for estimable legal and political careers. Barack Obama was the journal president during his time at the law school, and graduates regularly go on to clerkships with Supreme Court justices and jobs at top-tier law firms. With careers potentially on the line, the Harvard Law Review's decision on Egberia's essay came amid a crackdown in academia, in Ivy League schools, and elsewhere against pro-Palestinian speech following the October 7 Hamas attack and Israel's subsequent onslaught against the Gaza Strip. I can only speculate about the reasons of individual editors, said Ryan Dorfler, a law professor at Harvard who attended a meeting with Law Review staff about the Palestine article. What I can observe, though, is that the vote took place amidst a climate of suppression of pro-Palestinian advocacy. A second editor who asked for anonymity to speak freely about the process said that fear of backlash played a key role in their personal decision to vote no on Egberia's piece. The editor said they found substantive flaws in the piece that were exacerbated by a fear among editors that they would have their names and faces plastered on billboard trucks around campus, accusing them of being Hamas supporters, something that happened to pro-Palestine Harvard students who signed a controversial open letter. The editor said substantive flaws are generally removed from pieces prior to publication, 
but they did not feel such edits would have been possible in this case because of the lack of agreement on underlying facts. Quote, Reasonable scholarly debate couldn't happen in that context, they said, partly because we're not at a point in time where that debate can happen without your face being put on a truck. Dorfler praised Egberia's draft amid that climate of fear. Quote, it is a forceful piece of legal scholarship, he said, and it articulates a position that takes real courage to put forward. Egberia's article was published Tuesday night at The Nation under the headline, the Harvard Law Review refused to run this piece about genocide in Gaza. For some of the more than 100 editors at the Harvard Law Review, the delay and subsequent killing of Egberia's piece did not hew to the usual process. In a forthcoming public statement viewed by The Intercept, 25 Harvard Law Review editors objected to the move to squash the essay. Quote, we are unaware of any other solicited piece that has been revoked by the law review in this way, the editors wrote. This unprecedented decision threatens academic freedom and perpetuates the suppression of Palestinian voices. We dissent. In an interview, the first anonymous law review editor told me that they've evaluated hundreds of submissions for the journal and that Egberia's essay is more than just good enough. Both this editor and Shariara Parsa said that they believe the primary reason for the no votes was fear. Quote, editors expressed that they supported the piece and wanted to uplift marginalized voices, the second editor said, but were voting against publishing it because they were afraid of the consequences and had worked too hard to now risk their futures. Some also expressed concerns that the blowback to the piece would discriminatorily target editors of color more than others. Students, writers, and artists speaking out for Palestinian liberation are facing extreme levels of censorship and censure, especially in academia. Columbia University and Brandeis University have suspended the campus chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace on spurious grounds of violating campus protest policy and risk to campus safety. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ordered public universities to shut down chapters of the groups. Harvard, too, has faced pressure from major donors to crack down on pro-Palestinian speech. Students have been doxxed and harassed for writing a letter in the aftermath of October 7, saying Israel's longtime oppression of Palestinians was, quote, entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Quote, the Law Review specifically had just gone through an incident in which one of its members was doxxed after participating as a safety marshal at a die-in at the Harvard Business School campus organized by student activists, said Dorfler. Dorfler, who had been brought into a meeting with Ayer, Egberia, and two review editors on November 14 to discuss Egberia's essay, said the editor who participated in the die-in protests has been publicly criticized by a major university donor, quote, as part of his broader criticism of the university's handling of the crisis. In the essay, Egberia argues that the atrocities in Gaza amount to genocide. He considers the frames used to name Israel policies in Palestine more broadly and calls for a distinctive legal framework for Palestine. According to Egberia, just as the South Africa experience brought apartheid into global and legal lexicon, the distinctive nature of the domination Palestinians have faced should demand a new category of crime, Nakba, 
The word Palestinians used to describe their dispossession and expulsion at the founding of the State of Israel. Yale Law School professor Asli Bali, an international and human rights law expert who said she has never met or worked with Egberia, but was sent his essay and aware of Harvard Law Review's situation, said in an interview that the article constituted an excellent piece of legal scholarship. She noted that the essay's arguments are no doubt contested, as is the nature of legal argumentation. Quote, this is exactly the kind of work that good international legal scholarship should do, she said. Bali told The Intercept that in her quarter century of experience in legal scholarship, she has never heard of a contracted article which has gone through the editorial process being pulled before publication. She said, I've never heard of anything of this sort. And from thenation.com, here is the article by Rebea Egberia. Genocide is a crime. It is a legal framework. It is unfolding in Gaza. And yet, the inertia of legal academia, especially in the United States, has been chilling. Clearly, it is much easier to dissect the case law rather than navigate the reality of death. It is much easier to consider genocide in the past tense rather than contend with it in the present. Legal scholars tend to sharpen their pens after the smell of death has dissipated and moral clarity is no longer urgent. Some may claim that the invocation of genocide, especially in Gaza, is fraught. But does one have to wait for a genocide to be successfully completed to name it? This logic contributes to the politics of denial. When it comes to Gaza, there is a sense of moral hypocrisy that undergirds Western epistemological approaches, one which mutes the ability to name the violence inflicted upon Palestinians. But naming injustice is crucial to claiming justice. If the international community takes its crimes seriously, then the discussion about the unfolding genocide in Gaza is not a matter of mere semantics. The UN Genocide Convention defines the crime of genocide as certain acts, quote, committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. These acts include, quote, killing members of a protected group, or causing serious bodily or mental harm, or deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Numerous statements made by top Israeli politicians affirm their intentions. There is a forming consensus among leading scholars in the field of genocide studies that, quote, these statements could easily be construed as indicating a genocidal intent. As Omer Bartov, an authority in the field, writes, more importantly, genocide is a material reality of Palestinians in Gaza. An entrapped, displaced, starved, water-deprived population of 2.3 million facing massive bombardments and a carnage in one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Over 11,000 people have already been killed. 
that is one person out of every 200 people in Gaza. Tens of thousands are injured, and over 45% of homes in Gaza have been destroyed. The United Nations Secretary General said that Gaza is becoming a, quote, graveyard for children. But a cessation of the carnage, a ceasefire, remains elusive. Israel continues to blatantly violate international law, dropping white phosphorus from the sky, dispersing death in all directions, shedding blood, shelling neighborhoods, striking schools, hospitals, and universities, bombing churches and mosques, wiping out families, and ethnically cleansing an entire region in both callous and systemic manner. What do you call this? The Center for Constitutional Rights issued a thorough 44-page factual and legal analysis asserting that, quote, there is a plausible and credible case that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinian population in Gaza. Roz Siegel, a historian of the Holocaust and genocide studies, calls the situation in Gaza, quote, a textbook case of genocide unfolding in front of our eyes. The inaugural chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Luis Moreno Ocampo, notes that, quote, just the blockade of Gaza, just that, could be genocide under Article 2C of the Genocide Convention, meaning they are creating conditions to destroy a group. A group of over 800 academics and practitioners, including leading scholars in the fields of international law and genocide studies, warn of, quote, a serious risk of genocide being committed in the Gaza Strip. A group of seven UN Special Rapporteurs has alerted to the, quote, risk of genocide against the Palestinian people and reiterated that they, quote, remain convinced that the Palestinian people are at grave risk of genocide. 36 UN experts now call the situation in Gaza, quote, a genocide in the making. How many other authorities should I cite? How many hyperlinks are enough? And yet, leading law schools and legal scholars in the United States still fashion their silence as impartiality and their denial as nuance. Is genocide really the crime of all crimes if it is committed by Western allies against non-Western people? This is the most important question that Palestine continues to pose to the international legal order. Palestine brings to legal analysis an unmasking force. It unveils and reminds us of the ongoing colonial condition that underpins Western legal institutions. In Palestine, there are two categories, mournable civilians and savage human animals. Palestine helps us rediscover that these categories remain racialized along colonial lines in the 21st century. The first is reserved for Israelis, the latter for Palestinians. As Isaac Herzog, Israel's supposed liberal president, asserts, quote, It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. This rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. Palestinians simply cannot be innocent. They are innately guilty, potential terrorists to be neutralized or, at best, human shields obliterated as collateral damage. 
There is no number of Palestinian bodies that can move Western governments and institutions to, quote, unequivocally condemn Israel, let alone act in the present tense. When contrasted with Jewish-Israeli life, the ultimate victims of European genocidal ideologies, Palestinians stand no chance at humanization. Palestinians are rendered the contemporary savages of the international legal order, and Palestine becomes a frontier where the West redraws its discourse of civility and strips its domination in the most material way. Palestine is where genocide can be performed as a fight of, quote, the civilized world against, quote, the enemies of civilization itself. Indeed, a fight between the, quote, children of light versus the, quote, children of darkness. The genocidal war waged against the people of Gaza since Hamas's excruciating October 7th attacks against Israelis, attacks which amount to war crimes, has been the deadliest manifestation of Israeli colonial policies against Palestinians in decades. Some have long ago analyzed Israel's policies in Palestine through the lens of genocide. While the term genocide may have its own limitations to describe the Palestinian past, the Palestinian present was clearly preceded by a politicide, the extermination of the Palestinian body politic in Palestine, namely the systematic eradication of the Palestinian ability to maintain an organized political community as a group. This process of erasure has spanned over a hundred years. Through a combination of massacres, ethnic cleansing, dispossession, and the fragmentation of the remaining Palestinians into distinctive legal tiers with diverging material interests. Despite the partial success of this politicide and the continued prevention of a political body that represents all Palestinians, the Palestinian political identity has endured. Across the besieged Gaza Strip, the occupied West Bank, Jerusalem, Israel's 1948 territories, refugee camps, and the diasporic communities. Palestinian nationalism lives. What do we call this condition? How do we name this collective existence under a system of forced fragmentation and cruel domination? The human rights community has largely adopted a combination of occupation and apartheid to understand the situation in Palestine. Apartheid is a crime. It is a legal framework. It is committed in Palestine. And even though there is a consensus among the human rights community that Israel is perpetrating apartheid, the refusal of Western governments to come to terms with this material reality of Palestinians is revealing. Once again, Palestine brings a special uncovering force to the discourse. It reveals how otherwise credible institutions such as Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch are no longer to be trusted. It shows how facts become disputable in a Trumpist fashion by liberals such as President Biden. Palestine allows us to see the line that bifurcates the binaries, for example, trusted and untrusted, as much as it underscores the collapse of dichotomies, for example, Democrat-Republican or fact-claim. It is in this liminal space that Palestine exists and continues to defy the distinction itself. It is the exception that reveals the rule and the subtext that is, in fact, the text. 
Palestine is the most vivid manifestation of the colonial condition upheld in the 21st century. What do you call this ongoing colonial condition? Just as the Holocaust introduced the term genocide into the global and legal consciousness, the South African experience brought apartheid into the global and legal lexicon. It is due to the work and sacrifice of far too many lives that genocide and apartheid have globalized transcending these historical calamities. These terms became legal frameworks, crimes enshrined in international law, with the hope that their recognition will prevent their repetition. But in the process of abstraction, globalization, and readaptation, something was lost. Is it the affinity between the particular experience and the universalized abstraction of the crime that makes Palestine resistant to existing definitions? Scholars have increasingly turned to settler colonialism as the lens through which we assess Palestine. Settler colonialism is a structure of erasure where the settler displaces and replaces the native. And while settler colonialism, genocide, and apartheid are clearly not mutually exclusive, their ability to capture the material reality of Palestinians remains elusive. South Africa is a particular case of settler colonialism. So are Israel, the United States, Australia, Canada, Algeria, and more. The framework of settler colonialism is both useful and insufficient. It does not provide meaningful ways to understand the nuance between these different historical processes and does not necessitate a particular outcome. Some settler colonial cases have been incredibly normalized at the expense of a completed genocide. Others have led to radically different end solutions. Palestine both fulfills and defies the settler colonial condition. We must consider Palestine through the iterations of Palestinians. If the Holocaust is the paradigmatic case for the crime of genocide and South Africa for that of apartheid, then the crime against the Palestinian people must be called the Nakba. The term Nakba, meaning catastrophe, is often used to refer to the making of the State of Israel in Palestine, a process that entailed the ethnic cleansing of over 750,000 Palestinians from their homes and destroying 531 Palestinian villages between 1947 to 1949. But the Nakba has never ceased. It is a structure, not an event. Put shortly, the Nakba is ongoing. In its most abstract form, the Nakba is a structure that serves to erase the group dynamic, the attempt to incapacitate the Palestinians from exercising their political will as a group. It is the continuous collusion of states and systems to exclude the Palestinians from materializing their right to self-determination. In its most material form, the Nakba is each Palestinian killed or injured, each Palestinian imprisoned or otherwise subjugated, and each Palestinian dispossessed or exiled. The Nakba is both the material reality and the epistemic framework to understand the crimes committed against the Palestinian people. And these crimes, encapsulated in the framework of Nakba, 
are the result of the political ideology of Zionism, an ideology that originated in late 19th century Europe in response to the notions of nationalism, colonialism, and anti-Semitism. As Edward Said reminds us, Zionism must be assessed from the standpoint of its victims, not its beneficiaries. Zionism can be simultaneously understood as a national movement for some Jews and a colonial project for Palestinians. The making of Israel in Palestine took the form of consolidating Jewish national life at the expense of shattering a Palestinian one. For those displaced, misplaced, bombed, and dispossessed, Zionism is never a story of Jewish emancipation. It is a story of Palestinian subjugation. What is distinctive about the Nakba is that it has extended through the turn of the 21st century and evolved into a sophisticated system of domination that has fragmented and reorganized Palestinians into different legal categories, with each category subject to a distinctive type of violence. Fragmentation thus became the legal technology underlying the ongoing Nakba. The Nakba has encompassed both apartheid and genocidal violence in a way that makes it fulfill these legal definitions at various points in time, while still evading their particular historical frames. Palestinians have named and theorized the Nakba even in the face of persecution, erasure, and denial. This work has to continue in the legal domain. Gaza has reminded us that the Nakba is now. There are recurring threats by Israeli politicians and other public figures to commit the crime of the Nakba again. If Israeli politicians are admitting the Nakba in order to perpetuate it, the time has come for the world to also reckon with the Palestinian experience. The Nakba must globalize for it to end. We must imagine that one day there will be a recognized crime of committing a Nakba and a disapprobation of Zionism as an ideology based on racial elimination. The road to get there remains long and challenging, but we do not have the privilege to relinquish any legal tools available to name the crimes against the Palestinian people in the present and attempt to stop them. The denial of the genocide in Gaza is rooted in the denial of the Nakba, and both must end now. One of the pieces cited in that article is from the Center for Constitutional Rights. The Center for Constitutional Rights is a legal organization that works with communities under threat to fight for justice and liberation through litigation, advocacy, and strategic communications. Since 1966, the Center for Constitutional Rights has taken on oppressive systems of power, including structural racism, gender oppression, economic inequity, and governmental overreach. You will find them at ccrjustice.org, which is where they published this piece referenced in the prior article. Israel's unfolding genocide of the Palestinian people and U.S. failure to prevent and complicity in genocide. And this piece was published on October 18, 2023. So this is more than five weeks old, um, which means there's five more weeks of genocide happening in Gaza 
that had not yet happened when this piece was written and published. Quote, I am here like an olive tree. We will never leave our homeland. Raji Sarani. One, introduction. There is plausible and credible case based on powerful factual evidence that Israel is attempting to commit, if not actively committing, the crime of genocide in the occupied Palestinian territory and specifically against the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip. The gravest of crimes under international law, genocide refers to specific actions, such as killing or deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction of the group in whole or in part, taken with the intention of destroying in whole or in part the group targeted, including on ethnic or national grounds. Since October 7, 2023, Israel has escalated its 16-year closure over 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza, where approximately half the population is under 18. Indiscriminately and repeatedly bombing civilians while cutting off access to all basic necessities, including food, water, electricity, and medical supplies. And on October 13th, ordered a forced evacuation of 1.1 million Palestinians out of northern Gaza. As this briefing paper was being finalized on the evening of October 17, 2023, there were an estimated 500 fatalities following a reported Israeli airstrike at Al-Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza City, where many were seeking shelter. Excluding those killed at Al-Ali Hospital as of October 17, 2023, the Palestinian Ministry of Health has confirmed that 3,000 Palestinians have already been killed. And that number, as I read this article, is now about 14,500, including at least 1,030 children. And that number, as I read this article, is 6,000. And hundreds of family units. In 11 days, more than 12,500 people have been injured, that number being over 30,000 by now. One million Palestinians displaced. The UN is uh, tracking 1.7 million displaced Palestinians as of the time I'm reading this, and I'm reading this on November 21, 2023. And with reports of 1,200 missing people believed to be trapped under the rubble, and the report I saw today on that number was 3,000. As set forth below in both the detailed factual overview and the findings, Israeli officials have made statements revealing that these actions are for the purpose of destroying the Palestinian population in Gaza. This presents a plausible and credible case of a breach of the Genocide Convention. Like both Palestine and Israel, the United States is a signatory to the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, the first human rights treaty adopted by the United Nations General Assembly and considered the building block of the international human rights system. The Genocide Convention places a duty on all 153 signatories to both prevent and punish genocide. The Convention criminalizes not just the commission of genocide, 
but incitement and attempts to commit genocide, as well as complicity in genocide, which is discussed below in detail. Israel, the United States, and indeed all states must immediately comply with their obligations under the Convention. The United States has been obligated from the time learning of the serious risk of genocide of the Palestinian people to exercise its influence on Israel to prevent the crime. The United States is not only failing to uphold its obligation to prevent the commission of genocide, but there is a plausible and credible case to be made that the United States' actions to further the Israeli military operation, closure and campaign against the Palestinian population in Gaza, rise to the level of complicity in the crime under international law. The United States and U.S. citizens, including and up to the President, can be held responsible for their role in furthering genocide. Any individual who commits, incites, conspires to commit, or is complicit in genocide can be held liable under international law, including before the International Criminal Court, ICC, which already has an open investigation into crimes being committed in Palestine, or under U.S. law. The International Court of Justice, ICJ, also known as the World Court, which is empowered to resolve disputes between signatory states to the Genocide Convention, can also issue provisional measures to ensure compliance with the Convention in the case of an unfolding genocide, including if it finds that breaches of the Convention are, quote, plausible. Additionally, because the prohibition against genocide is recognized as a crime under customary international law, as what is known as a just cogens norm with erga omnes obligations. It is binding on all countries and can be prosecuted under the principle of universal jurisdiction. Israel's invocation of self-defense for the campaign it has unleashed against the entire Palestinian population in Gaza and the full credit the United States gives it when affirming its unconditional support does not negate genocidal intent or serve as a justification for its crimes under international law. Israel launched its most recent war on Gaza in response to an attack by fighters from Hamas's military wing, the Al-Qasim Brigade, which killed at least 1,400 people, and that figure has been revised by Israel down to 1,200 people because they counted some of the attackers among the dead in that original 1,400 number has been revised now to 1,200, the majority of whom were Israeli civilians and took an estimated 200 people, that's estimated about a little under 240 now, from Israel into Gaza as hostages. This targeting or willful killing of civilians and taking of civilian hostages constitute violations of international humanitarian law, including the law prohibiting war crimes, and should be addressed through the appropriate mechanisms for accountability. Yet, as the law makes clear, quote, no state or individual can ever be permitted to justify genocide in the name of self-defense. We also make clear that nothing in this analysis should be understood as minimizing the prior or ongoing crimes and gross human rights violations by Israel that are separate from the crime of genocide, including war crimes and the crimes against humanity of apartheid, persecution, and extermination that have been separately well-documented by U.S., international, and Israeli human rights groups. 
These serious violations impose obligations on states to take all measures possible to prevent their commission and to stop recurrence through accountability mechanisms at both the state and individual level. With the support of an endorsement by the United States, Israel has enjoyed impunity for such crimes. In the absence of accountability, we have now reached the point of genocide. All states must now finally act, including the United States, to end and address all of these crimes. Immediately, the United States must take all available measures to secure a ceasefire, to pressure Israel to end all military operations, and to ensure the provision of food, water, medical supplies, emergency housing, and other humanitarian assistance to Palestinians in Gaza. The United States must end all military aid as well as political, economic, and diplomatic support to Israel until Israel comes into compliance with international law. In addition, the international community must achieve the immediate end of Israel's 16-year closure of the Gaza Strip, Israel's 56-year military occupation of the occupied Palestinian territory, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, and the apartheid regime Israel administers across historic Palestine. 2. The Crime of Genocide Quote, I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we act accordingly. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant In the aftermath of World War II and the horror of the Holocaust, the Genocide Convention was adopted to deter and prevent such horrors in the future, and, failing that, to hold those responsible accountable. In its first opinion examining the scope, purpose, and obligations under the Genocide Convention, the ICJ found, quote, Its object on one hand is to safeguard the very existence of certain human groups, and on the other, to confirm and endorse the most elementary principles of morality. The Genocide Convention recognizes responsibility at both the state level and of individuals, and calls for accountability at both levels. The Genocide Convention defines genocide as committing specific acts, quote, with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. The group is what must be targeted, on grounds including nationality or ethnicity, and it is the group that is protected. The part, targeted for destruction, can be represented by a subgroup, for example, in a specific geographic area. Palestinians living in Gaza as part of the Palestinian population can constitute the targeted group for the purposes of the Genocide Convention. Genocide, like the crime against humanity of persecution, is a crime distinguished by the specific intent to target a group on recognized grounds through a series of acts often reflected in and achieved through state policies. In the case of genocide, the protected group itself is targeted for destruction. As the General Assembly underscored in 1946, the quote, Denial of the right of existence shocks the conscience of humankind results in great losses to humanity in the form of cultural and other contributions represented by these human groups, and is contrary to moral law and to the spirit and aims of the United Nations. 
The specific intent to destroy a group, which can be inferred from the general context, is incompatible with the argument of self-defense. International criminal law scholars agree that the gravity and specificity of the crime of genocide, the perpetrator must intend to destroy a group, makes inconceivable the justification of defensive force under Article 31.1c of the Rome Statute. A group's very existence, in this case Palestinians in Gaza, would thus need to be characterized as an imminent unlawful threat, which is an untenable proposition here. Further, the right of self-defense is bound by the principles of international law, as well as the rule of proportionality, and, quote, cannot comprise retaliatory or punitive action. For this reason, no state or individual can ever be permitted to justify genocide in the name of self-defense. In addition to prohibiting the commission of genocide, the Genocide Convention prohibits conspiring, inciting, attempting to commit, and complicity in genocide. The International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, ICTR, and the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, ICTY, have addressed different forms of complicity to the crime of genocide, including aiding and abetting genocide, as well as conspiracy and joint criminal enterprise. Mass killings are one means by which genocide is committed, but that is not the only method by which a group is, quote, destroyed or exterminated in whole or in part. Raphael Lemkin, the Polish Jewish lawyer credited with coining the term, said that genocide often includes, quote, a coordinated plan aimed at destruction of the essential foundations of the life of national groups, so that these groups wither and die like plants that have suffered a blight. It may be accomplished by wiping out all basis of personal security, liberty, health, and dignity. More than 50 years after Lemkin's foundational observation, the ICTR rendered the first genocide conviction by an international court and held that in addition to killings, quote, subjecting a group of people to a subsistence diet, systematic expulsion from homes, and the reduction of essential medical services below the minimum requirement constituted the crime of genocide as, quote, methods of destruction by which the perpetrator does not immediately kill the members of the group, but which ultimately seek their physical destruction. As a leading genocide scholar has determined, settler colonial regimes such as Israel are structured through their policies and expansionist planning to facilitate the commission of genocide and often undertake genocidal moments in response to the resistance of a colonized or occupied people. A. Elements of Genocide Article 2 of the Genocide Convention defines the crime of genocide by two main elements. 1. Specific underlying acts and 2. Intent the same elements define the crime of genocide in the statute of the ICC, as well as the ICTY and ICTR. Genocide is a crime whether committed in a time of peace or war. That genocide takes place while a party is in an armed conflict with another group, quote, can in no way be considered as an extenuating circumstance for it. Specific Underlying Acts the first element, specific underlying acts, include any of the following. A. Killing members of the group. 
B. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. As is particularly relevant to the unfolding situation in Gaza, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part is an act of genocide. The ICC Elements of Crimes Drawing from Customary International Law defines the term conditions of life as including but not limited to, quote, deliberate deprivation of resources indispensable for survival, such as food or medical services, or systematic expulsion from homes. The tribunal examining the case of Srebrenica, for example, explained that such methods of destruction, quote, do not immediately kill the members of the group, but ultimately seek their physical destruction. Proof that the result was actually attained is not required. Denying medical services, systematically expelling members of the group from their homes, and creating circumstances that would, quote, lead to a slow death, such as the lack of proper housing, water, shelter, clothing, hygiene, sanitation, or proper food, including by subjecting people to a subsistence diet or subjecting members of the group to excessive work or physical exertion, have all been found to be examples of conditions of life calculated to bring about a group's physical destruction in whole or in part by international tribunals in the context of the Rwandan and Srebrenica genocides. The actual nature of the conditions of life, the length of time that members of the group were subjected to them, and the characteristics of the group, such as its vulnerability, are illustrative factors to be considered in evaluating the criterion of probability. For the purposes of genocide, killing is equated with murder, meaning causing the death by an act or omission with the intent to either kill or cause serious bodily harm that would likely lead to death. There is no minimum number of people killed necessary to establish that genocide has been committed. Because of the obligation on states to take all measures to prevent genocide, as well as the prohibition on the attempt to commit genocide, State obligations are triggered when killings are done in a manner that reveals an intention to destroy a targeted population in whole or in part. Examples of causing serious bodily or mental harm as an act of genocide include torture, inhumane or degrading treatment, interrogations combined with beatings and harm that damages health or causes disfigurement or serious injury to the external or internal organs of members of the group although the harm does not need to be permanent and irremediable. The threats of death and knowledge of impending death can constitute serious mental harm, with war crimes tribunals specifically recognizing the serious mental harm caused by the threat of indiscriminate killings. Quote, the fear of being captured and at the moment of the separation, the sense of utter helplessness and extreme fear for their family and friends' safety is a traumatic experience from which one will not quickly, if ever, recover. Torture as an underlying act of genocide means causing serious physical or mental harm, which can be done through physical injuries or by threats to harm or kill a person or relative of a lo or loved one, in order to coerce or punish 
with the intention of producing mental suffering such as fear. Deportation has also long been recognized as causing serious bodily or mental harm. Specific Intent The second element, intent, requires that these acts be committed, quote, with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Genocidal or specific intent means that the result of destroying the group in whole or in part is clearly intended. It is the group qua group and not only certain individual members of the group that must be targeted to be destroyed in whole or in part. Quote, in part, is understood as a substantial part of a particular group, which can be part of the larger group within geographically limited area. This specific intent may be proven from the facts and circumstances of a case. Evidence of specific intent can include, but is not limited to, the general context, the scale of atrocities, the systematic targeting of victims on account of their membership in a particular group, other culpable acts systematically directed against the same group, or the repetition of destructive and discriminatory acts. While forcible transfer is not deemed a standalone indicia of the intent to destroy, it is a relevant consideration when assessing genocidal intent. The existence of a plan or policy can also be a factor used to establish specific intent, but it is not required. Genocidal intent may also be inferred from public speeches and statements by officials. When considering a request for provisional measures in regard to the unfolding genocide of Rohingya in Myanmar, Burma, the ICJ looked at various United Nations fact-finding missions, reports, and resolutions to assess whether it was plausible that the underlying acts in genocidal intent were satisfied and specifically noted, quote, the systematic stripping of human rights, the dehumanizing narratives and rhetoric, the methodical planning, mass killing, mass displacement, mass fear, overwhelming levels of brutality, combined with the physical destruction of the home of the targeted population, in every sense and on every level, to grant provisional measures. B. The duty to prevent genocide. Article 1 of the Conventions creates a legal duty to prevent genocide. This undertaking to prevent genocide is not a passive obligation, but rather, quote, implies that each state party must assess whether a genocide or serious risk of genocide exists. This obligation to prevent reflects the international community's collective commitment to ensure that groups are not targeted for destruction because of their identity. The ICJ has made clear that, quote, a state's obligation to prevent and the corresponding duty to act arise at the instant that the state learns of, or should normally have learned of, the existence of a serious risk that genocide will be committed. States are required to take all measures reasonably available to them to prevent this risk from that moment onwards. If the state is available to it means likely to have a deterrent effect on those suspected of preparing genocide or reasonably suspected of harboring specific intent. Whether a state has breached its duty to prevent depends on the state's ability to effectively influence the actions of the people likely to commit or already committing genocide. Strong political links, as well as links of 
all other kinds between the authorities of that state and the main actors in the events are indicia of capacity to prevent genocide. States will be held responsible for failing to prevent, quote, if the state manifestly failed to take all measures to prevent genocide which were within its power and which might have contributed to preventing the genocide. To the extent they exercise influence, states are required to prevent outside of their territory as well. C. Complicity in Genocide Complicity to commit genocide is a standalone crime, triggering both state responsibility and individual criminal responsibility, regardless of position under the Genocide Convention. Complicity can only exist when there is a punishable act of genocide by another state or persons with which the accomplice associates itself. The International Law Commission's articles on state responsibility apply when assessing the responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts. As the ICJ has explained, for purposes of state responsibility under the Genocide Convention, complicity, quote, includes a provision of means to enable or facilitate the commission of the crime. It is similar to a category found among the customary rules constituting the law of state responsibility, that of the aid or assistance furnished by one state for the commission of a wrongful act by another state. It is enough that a state acts with, quote, knowledge of the wrongful act, in this case genocide, when it provides aids or support. It does not need to share the specific intent to commit genocide. Complicity requires that some positive action has been taken to furnish aid or assistance to the perpetrators of the genocide. A finding of complicity against a state is found if its, quote, organs were aware that genocide was about to be committed or was underway, and if the aid and assistance supplied from the moment they became so aware onwards to the perpetrators of the criminal acts or to those who were on the point of committing them enabled or facilitated the commission of the acts. For individual criminal responsibility, complicity is accomplished by instigation, aiding and abetting, or by procuring the means for the commission of genocide. Providing weapons or other instruments and means used in the commission of genocide, knowing that they would be used for that purpose, constitutes a form of complicity. The accomplice does not have to share with the perpetrator the genocidal intent, the specific intent to destroy a group in whole or in part based on its identity. 3. Relevant Facts A. Context and Historical Background Quote we are not looking back to dig up the evidence of a past crime, for the Nakba is an extended present that promises to continue in the future. Mahmoud Darwish Since 1947, there have been multiple genocidal moments where Israeli settler colonial regime has engaged in the mass killing of Palestinians and their mass expulsion and annexation of their land causing severe physical or mental harm to the Palestinian community. The first such moment, the Palestinian Nakba, provides critical context for the understanding the ideology and infrastructure upon which Israel is now acting in October 2023, and that Israeli officials are now explicitly invoking. The Nakba, or the Catastrophe, 
refers to the Zionist militia's violent campaign of mass displacement and dispossession between 1947 and 1949, resulting in the forced displacement of 85% of the Palestinian population, the destruction of 531 Palestinian towns and villages, and the expulsion of some 750,000 Palestinians who became refugees. Palestinians fled or were forced to flee as the armed forces of the Zionist movement, namely Ergun and Lehi units, as well as the Haganah, carried out a series of mass atrocities, including dozens of massacres and killing an estimated 15,000 Palestinians. In the days preparing for the particularly horrifying massacre in Deir Yassin, where more than 100 Palestinians, including children, were killed, the Lehi unit, quote, put forward a proposal to liquidate the residents of the village in order to break Arab morale. Over the past 75 years, successive Israeli governments have pursued deliberate, calculated, and explicit campaigns against Palestinians of forced expulsion, transfer, and displacement, killing, fragmentation, arbitrary imprisonment, torture, and denial of fundamental rights. In the West Bank, under the belligerent military occupation since 1967, the Israeli policy of annexation has been marked by a steady incremental process of forcibly removing Palestinians and concentrating them into enclaves while transferring its own Israeli civilian population into occupied territory in violation of Article 49 of the 1949 Geneva Convention relative to the protection of civilian persons in time of war, known as the Fourth Geneva Convention. Human rights advocates, journalists, and international human rights bodies, such as the United Nations, have extensively documented the combination of administrative measures, discriminatory land regime, and dispossessions of land and resources, mass detention, as well as state and settler violence over the past decades. Just this year, several Palestinian communities in the West Bank were forcibly displaced at alarming rates. In response to Palestinian protests and uprisings to these intolerable conditions, the Israeli military has responded with massive military repression, excessive force, killings, and collective punishment. For the past 16 years in Gaza, Palestinians have been subjected to Israel's land, sea, and air closure while living under belligerent occupation. At the time Israel instituted the closure, it declared Gaza, with its then-population of approximately 1.8 million people, quote, hostile territory, and the population, quote, the enemy. Israel's closure policy has resulted in a denial of fundamental rights, including the right to freedom of movement, life and physical security, adequate standard of living, including the right to adequate food, water, housing, right to health, right to education and to work, right to family, and the right to self-determination. Palestinians in Gaza have suffered from severe shortages of food, sanitary and clean drinking water, electricity, essential medical services and treatment, including medicine and critical infrastructure. Many basic necessities are provided and withheld at the will of Israel, Western governments, and international humanitarian aid agencies. Palestinians in Gaza who require life-saving or emergency medical treatment 
can only access such medical care outside of Gaza. However, Palestinians are required to secure permits from Israeli authorities to leave the Strip, and these are systematically delayed or denied. Israeli authorities regularly subjected Palestinians, particularly in Gaza, to multiple forms of collective punishment, including sustained military campaigns. These campaigns, including the ongoing military assault on Gaza, have each resulted in the mass killings of Palestinian civilians, including children. Over the course of the 16-year closure and prior to the current military attack, Israel carried out at least five mass military attacks on the Palestinian civilian population and attacked the, quote, Great March of Return protests, killing more than 5,365 Palestinians, including journalists, medical workers, and unarmed protesters. On December 27, 2008, Israel launched a 22-day military assault known as Operation Cast Lead. Israeli forces killed nearly 1,400 Palestinians, the majority of whom were civilians, including 440 children, 111 women, and 108 elderly. In the aftermath of the assault, a UN-appointed fact-finding mission found that Israel had committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. Between November 14 and November 21, 2012, Israel carried out an eight-day campaign known as Operation Pillar Defense, launching over 1,500 airstrikes and killing at least 174 Palestinians, the majority of which were civilians, including 33 children and 13 women. Between July 8 and August 26, 2014, Israel carried out a 51-day military assault against Palestinians in Gaza, which killed 2,251 Palestinians, including 551 children and 299 women. At least 11,231 Palestinians were injured, including 3,540 women and 3,436 children. As a result of these injuries, about one-third of them will suffer from lifelong disabilities, as was the case for then-15-year-old Atiya Fati al-Nabahin, who was shot by Israeli forces in the spine, leaving him quadriplegic. During his lifetime, Atiya, quote, survived six full-scale military bombardments on Gaza and a shooting that left him paralyzed, and was killed in the current hostilities on October 8, 2023, with 12 members of his family when Israeli forces targeted the four-story house of the al-Nabahin family without prior warning. Beginning in May 2018, Palestinians in Gaza organized weekly peaceful mass demonstrations demanding the right of return for the millions of Palestinian refugees who were forcibly expelled by Israel and demanding an end to Israel's then 11-year illegal blockade. Israel deployed tanks, military vehicles, and soldiers, and it ordered soldiers, including snipers, to, quote, shoot anyone within several hundred meters of the fence. More than 150 Palestinians were killed in the demonstrations, and at least 10,000 Palestinians were injured, including 1,849 children and 424 women and 115 journalists. At least 5,814 Palestinians suffered hits from live ammunition, during these peaceful demonstrations. Between May 10 and 21, 2021, Israel again escalated military violence against Palestinians in Gaza, 
after protests erupted across occupied Palestine in response to the forced removal of Palestinians from their homes in Shejara, Jerusalem. As a result, 261 Palestinians were killed in Gaza, including 67 children and 41 women. Half of the Palestinians killed during this escalation were killed by air-launched explosive weapons. One series of airstrikes launched on May 16, 2021, hit three apartment buildings, killing 22 members across four generations of the El Kolak family, 15 members across at least three generations of the Abu al-Uf family, and five members of the Ishkantana family. Altogether, 44 civilians were killed, including 18 children. For years, Israel officials have made clear that these attacks on Palestinians, which have resulted in large numbers of deaths and caused serious bodily injury and mental harm to Palestinians in Gaza, are deliberate. During the 2014 bombardment in Gaza, the special advisors of the UN Secretary General on the Prevention of Genocide and on the Responsibility to Protect issued a warning in response to, quote, flagrant use of hate speech in the social media, particularly against the Palestinian population, and the dehumanization of Palestinians and calls for their killing, while reasserting the prohibition of such incitement under international law. The current crime being committed against Palestinians in Gaza is the culmination of what the Israeli government, backed by much of the United States and with the support of many Western powers, started in 1948. It is the completion of what has thus far been Israel's, quote, incremental genocide against Palestinians. B. The Current Genocidal Moment Quote, It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It is not true this rhetoric about civilians not being aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true. Israeli President Isaac Herzog since Prime Minister Netanyahu's declaration of war on October 7, 2023, at least 3,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed. More than 1 million people have been internally displaced. The number of fatalities do not include those killed at Al-Ali Arabi Hospital on October 17, 2023, and are also expected to climb further as families struggle to recover the bodies of their loved ones from under the rubble. Authorities in Gaza City have had to store bodies in ice cream freezer trucks as they prepare to dig mass graves to accommodate all the bodies. Entire families have been eliminated and over 1,030 children have been killed. And as previously mentioned, those numbers are now well out of date. As set out below, prior to and alongside these acts of mass killings and targeting of civilian infrastructure, Israeli officials in the political and military hierarchy have made clear unambiguous statements that reveal an intent to destroy the Palestinian population in Gaza, including by creating conditions of life calculated to bring about the population's destruction in whole or in part. These statements include referring to the entire Palestinian population of Gaza without distinction, be it civilians versus combatants, those directly participating in hostilities, or children elderly as quote, the enemy, or quote, terrorists, who need to be and whose communities will be, quote, cleared out. In their public statements and speeches, 
Israeli officials use dehumanizing language describing Palestinians in Gaza as human animals and bloodthirsty monsters. They have also been unequivocal in the goal of maximum harm. The emphasis is on damage and not accuracy, using fire of a magnitude that the enemy has not known. Messages by current government officials have been amplified by former government officials and reservists, both domestically and internationally, using similar dehumanizing language and echoing calls for killing, causing serious bodily or mental harm, and the creation of conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction of the Palestinian population in Gaza. Based on inferences that can be drawn from such statements and the conduct that follows by Israeli forces over the course of the first week of Israel's attack, an increasing number of experts, observers, and scholars have warned that Israel is attempting, inciting, if not actually committing genocide through these acts against the Palestinian population in Gaza. The findings that follow this section affirm the warnings. In the following pages, this document compiles day-by-day summaries of the main Israeli statement actions and the effects of those actions on the Palestinian population of Gaza. Following the conduct by Israel that presents at least a plausible and credible case of genocide, statements and actions showing assistance, support, and facilitation by the United States and U.S. officials for Israel's campaign are pulled out in text boxes. Placing the U.S. conduct in a timeline against the Israeli conduct makes clear what the United States knew or should have known when it made the decision to provide or continue to provide Israel with massive and critical political, economic, and military support for its actions taken against the Palestinian population. U.S. unconditional military and diplomatic support has preceded October 7. As of May 2021, the United States has blocked at least 53 U.N. Security Council resolutions critical of Israeli human rights and international law violations. Israel is the largest cumulative recipient of United States foreign assistance since World War II. Since 1946, the United States has sent $260 billion inflation-adjusted in military and economic aid to Israel. In 2022 alone, the United States sent Israel $4.8 billion in military aid. As set out in the findings, there is a plausible and credible claim that the United States has breached its obligation under the Genocide Convention to prevent genocide and instead is crossing the line to complicity in genocide. A note on the timeline, the examples offered are in no way comprehensive of the crimes currently being committed, particularly in light of the rapidly evolving situation, nor should they be understood as discounting the ongoing nature of Israeli domination and of crimes against the Palestinian people for the last 75 years. On October 7, in a televised address, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared war. Quote, Citizens of Israel, we are at war, not in an operation or in rounds, but at war. He announced that Israel had started, quote, clearing out the communities that have been infiltrated by terrorists. He further disclosed that he had ordered an extensive mobilization of reserves and that Israel returned fire of a magnitude that the enemy has not known. Warning of the acts of genocide to follow directed at the Palestinian population of Gaza as a whole. He stated, quote, The enemy will pay an unprecedented price. 
Netanyahu ordered more than 2 million Palestinians in Gaza to get out now, despite the fact that they have nowhere to go due to Israeli-imposed closure, threatening that, quote, Israel will be everywhere and with all our might. In addition to the announcement of a mass-forced expulsion of Gaza civilians, Israel's energy minister, Israel Katz, also announced an order cutting off all electricity to the entire Gaza Strip. Quote, what was will not be. Israeli member of Knesset Ariel Kalner stated, quote, right now, one goal, Nakba, a Nakba that will overshadow the Nakba of 1948. Following these calls, Israeli forces launched airstrikes, targeting and destroying houses and multi-story buildings with residential units. Israel's suspension of fuel and electricity to Gaza has deliberately inflicted mass humanitarian suffering, with the Israeli source of electricity cut off and made the Gaza power plant the sole power source for the entire strip, meaning that as soon as its fuel ran out, the entire strip would be cut off from electricity, except for individual private generators, until they, too, run out of fuel. The UN warned of fuel running out within a matter of days. Within the same day, Israel's attack led to the killing of at least 232 Palestinians and the injuring of at least 1,700 others. At least 20,000 Palestinians had been internally displaced and sought shelter in 44 UNRWA schools, in Gaza. U.S. Support for Israel's Campaign In the immediate aftermath of Israel declaring war against Gaza, President Biden affirmed that the United States, quote, stands ready to offer all appropriate means of support to the government and people of Israel, and declared, my administration's support for Israel's security is rock-solid and unwavering. Executive agency officials, including cabinet secretary members, also reaffirmed the United States' unequivocal support of Israel. On October 8, Israel's ambassador to the U.S., Michael Herzog, was asked in a CNN interview about minimizing the loss of Palestinian life. In response, Ambassador Herzog baselessly accused the U.N. of exaggerating the deaths of Palestinian civilians, questioned the credibility of all Palestinian sources or eyewitness accounts, suggesting that a significant portion of civilian deaths are, quote, terrorists. He declared that Israel, quote, sends warnings to the population to evacuate. When densely civilian populated areas are subject to Israeli airstrikes, proclaiming that, quote, that's with all the way we've always operated. By October 8, the death toll rose to at least 413 Palestinians killed, including 78 children and 41 women, and 2,300 injured. Of the 123,538 Palestinians displaced, over half were sheltering across 64 UNRWA schools. Israeli airstrikes directly hit one of those schools. Israel also targeted and destroyed residential structures in Gaza, at times with no evacuation warnings to residents. Israel destroyed 159 housing units and severely damaged another 1,210. As a result of Israel Energy Minister Katz's October 7 order to cut all electricity, hospital patient admissions were rising. Newborns, dialysis patients, and patients requiring medical procedures or surgery were among the worst impacted. Households in Gaza suffered immediate water shortages. 
On October 8, U.S. Secretary of Defense Austin Lloyd directed the Navy's, quote, most advanced aircraft carrier and its heavily armed strike group, the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group, to the coast of Israel. He announced that additionally the U.S. will be rapidly providing the Israeli Defense Forces with additional equipment and resources, including munitions, that will begin moving today and arriving in the coming days. He further reaffirmed that strengthening our joining force posture, in addition to the material support that we will rapidly provide to Israel, underscores the United States' ironclad support for the Israeli Defense Forces and the Israeli people. On October 9, Israeli Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip, using dehumanizing language to describe the Palestinian population, while announcing collective punishment aimed at creating conditions that would cause serious physical harm, if not death, to the Palestinian population in Gaza. Quote, There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel, everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we act accordingly. The minister also threatened to, quote, bomb those attempting to provide aid to the Gaza Strip, and summoned an unprecedented 300,000 reservists. By this day, over 500 Palestinians, including at least 91 children, had been killed. Israeli airstrikes attacked refugee camps in Al-Shadi and Jabalia. In Jabalia, airstrikes hit a public market area in the refugee camp killing at least 50 Palestinians and injuring 120 in a residential building in central Jabalia. In Israel also bombed the Rafah crossing at the Gaza-Egypt border, effectively closing the crossing and completely blockading all Palestinians from movement or supplies in Gaza. As Israel deliberately inflicted on Palestinians, quote, conditions of life calculated to bring about Palestinians' physical destruction, and after widespread reports of civilian areas being deliberately targeted, President Biden, along with other leaders of its Western allies, France, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom, released a statement declaring their commitment to remaining, quote, united and coordinated to ensure Israel is able to defend itself and to ultimately set the conditions for a peaceful and integrated Middle East region. In doing so, each named country explicitly provided Israel with the diplomatic and political means to facilitate its blockade of the most essential necessities to survival in Gaza. By at least October 9, if not earlier, white phosphorus artillery shells with U.S. Department of Defense identification codes were positioned in Sederet, outside Gaza, and were likely the ones launched towards Gaza on October 11. October 10, Israeli Statements and Conduct Advancing Genocide. Quote, Gaza will eventually turn into a city of tents. Israeli security official. On October 10th, IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari announced that the Israeli military had already dropped hundreds of tons of bombs, adding that the emphasis is on damage and not accuracy. Israeli Major General Ghassan Alian, the head of the Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territories, COGAT, explicitly stated the intention to destroy Palestinian life in Gaza. Quote, Human animals must be treated as such. There will be no electricity and no water in Gaza. There will only be destruction. You wanted hell, you will get hell. 
Reservist Major General Giora Island wrote in the Israeli newspaper Yedioth Aronoth, quote, Creating a severe humanitarian crisis in Gaza is a necessary means to achieve the goal, declaring that Gaza will become a place where no human being can exist. Amid growing Israeli airstrikes, the death toll rose to over 900, including at least 260 children. More than 4,600 Palestinians had been injured. Israel's attacks increasingly targeted and killed healthcare workers and journalists. The UN warned that 400,000 Palestinians in Gaza did not have running water due to the damage sustained by Israeli airstrikes and actions. Israeli officials threatened to bomb aid trucks delivering life-saving relief supplies to the Gaza Strip. During a press conference on October 10, President Biden reasserted unconditional, unequivocal backing of Israeli acts, stating that the United States, quote, will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. He also perpetuated an Israeli disinformation campaign rooted in the dehumanization of Palestinians, whereby he claimed that he, quote, saw images of beheaded children and infants when no such pictures existed. It was a full day before his staff issued a clarification that neither he nor his staff had actually seen photos of beheaded children and that there were no confirmed reports or photos of beheaded children or babies. In his much-anticipated first speech, President Biden did not once mention Palestinian civilian deaths and rather only a passing reference to international law standards. Department of State spokesperson Matthew Miller was asked whether the United States was aware of the number of Palestinians killed and whether the U.S. will, quote, call on Israel to cease its effort now in cutting off medicine, water, humanitarian aid, and electricity to Gaza. He refused to speak to the number of Palestinians killed by Israel and instead justified Israel's collective punishment of the entire population. Quote, Let me start by saying that we are in the early days of Israel's response. Israel has a right to conduct an aggressive response to respond to the terrorism that's been committed against its citizens. We expect them to follow international law. We believe that they will, and we will remain in close contact with them about it. October 11, IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Concricus reported that the 300,000 reservists, including infantry, armored soldiers, artillery corps, and many other soldiers from the reserves, were close to the Gaza Strip threatening a ground invasion into the 25-mile-long stretch of land. Israeli forces intentionally targeted medical teams. Palestinian Red Crescent Society issued a statement condemning the killing of four of its paramedics in less than half an hour, in a single day, despite prior coordination. Israeli forces also used white phosphorus in densely populated areas across Gaza in direct violation of international law. The chemical weapon causes severe burns down to the bone. White phosphorus can be fatal even if exposed on only 10% of a human body and causes generational birth defects. As of this date, Israeli attacks had killed at least 1,100 Palestinians and injured 5,339. The number of displaced Palestinians increased to at least 340,000, nearly 218,000 of whom were sheltering across 92 UNRWA schools in the Strip. Gaza's sole power plant shut down after its last fuel reserves ran out under Israel's siege over the entire strip, resulting in the loss of electricity for over 2 million Palestinians, 
except for those who had smaller generators. Israel's shutdown of Gaza's electricity was devastating for injured civilians who had survived Israeli airstrikes and were in the hospital. The spokesperson for the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza warned that life-saving machines in hospitals were running on generators and would, quote, soon stop working, causing mass Palestinian injuries and deaths. On the morning of October 11, quote, President Biden and Vice President Harris spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu to discuss ongoing U.S. support for Israel as Israel defends itself and protects its people. October 12, the Israeli military ordered the entire population of northern Gaza, over one million people, including U.N. staff and civilians sheltered in U.N. facilities, to relocate to southern Gaza within 24 hours. After previous threats to bomb aid trucks from Egypt, Israeli Minister of Energy Israel Katz affirmed Israel's continued blockade of humanitarian assistance with complete disregard for the serious bodily harm such action would cause to all Palestinians, including the risk of death. Quote, humanitarian aid to Gaza, no electrical switch will be turned on, no water hydrant will be opened, and no fuel truck will enter until the Israeli abductees are returned home. Humanitarianism for humanitarianism, and no one will preach us morality. As of this date, 1,537 Palestinians have been killed, including 500 children and 276 women, and 6,612 injured. On this day alone, Israeli forces killed 250 people, including 44 members of the Shabab family. 16 of whom were children between the ages of 2 and 14. Within 24 hours, 338,000 Palestinians had been displaced across the Gaza Strip. Two-thirds of those displaced were sheltering in 92 UNRWA schools. Filled with civilians taking refuge, 88 schools were struck by Israeli strikes, including 18 UNRWA schools and 70 Palestinian Authority schools. The total number of United Nations relief workers killed climbed to 12. Ambulances, including medical personnel, were targeted and killed during humanitarian missions to evacuate Palestinians. Over 2,500 housing units had become uninhabitable due to severe damage or destruction. By this date, Israel carried out 34 attacks on the health sector in the Gaza Strip. And Israeli airstrikes hit seven, quote, significant water and sewage facilities, serving more than one million people. On October 12, hours before Israel commanded the evacuation of 1.1 million residents of northern Gaza, Secretary Blinken traveled to Israel and held private and public meetings with Israeli officials. He publicly reaffirmed the United States' unconditional backing of Israel in a press conference, quote, The United States will always be there by your side, stating that the same message was delivered by President Biden to Prime Minister Netanyahu from the moment this crisis began. He also reaffirmed the constant communication between Israeli officials and U.S. officials on a daily, even hourly basis. Blinken declared that the United States' material support to Israel includes, quote, supplying ammunition, interceptors to replenish Israel's Iron Dome, alongside other defense material, with the first shipment of support having already arrived. Secretary of Defense Austin also confirmed that the U.S. was working urgently to get Israel what it needs, including munitions and iron drone interceptors, all under the auspices of Israeli, quote, needing such material support to defend itself. 
These statements from Blinken and Austin about increasing ammunition support were made the day it was widely reported that Israel used white phosphorus on civilian areas. Rather than condemning Israel's evacuation order, U.S. National Security Council NSC spokesman John Kirby issued a defense, quote, The Israeli Defense Forces are trying to move civilians out of harm's way and giving them fair warning. However, medical professionals in Gaza revealed an entirely different reality. Quote, The fighter jets are demolishing entire streets block by block, and there is no place to hide, no time to rest. Some places are being bombed on consecutive nights. Meanwhile, documentation and real-time testimony inside Gaza consistently revealed Israeli airstrikes directly targeting civilians, including those trying to move from northern Gaza to the south. In response to a question from a reporter about whether the United States would withhold military aid to Israel until they create a humanitarian corridor, NSC coordinator Kirby responded, quote, We are providing Israel military aid as we speak, so no, there's no plans of holding back military assistance. We wouldn't do that. The president has been talking now for three days about how we're going to keep giving them the capabilities that they need. Later, NSC coordinator Kirby stated that the U.S. is, quote, actively having conversations with the Israelis and the Egyptians about a safe passage corridor so that people who want to leave can leave, and having conversations about humanitarian goods. On October 13, Israeli President Isaac Herzog announced, quote, It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true. Israel infantry released their first official account of ground raids into Gaza, with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu declaring, quote, We are striking our enemies with unprecedented might. I emphasize that this is only the beginning. Minister of Energy and Infrastructure Israel Katz declared, quote, All the civilian population in Gaza is ordered to leave immediately. We will win. They will not receive a drop of water or a single battery until they leave the world. UN and international humanitarian organizations warned of the catastrophe that would result from Israel's forcible relocation of Palestinians in Gaza and appealed to rescind its evacuation order. Meanwhile, current and previous Israeli government officials voiced acceptance, if not support, for the suffering it would cause the Palestinian population as a whole. For example, IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus stated, quote, We will not allow anything into the Gaza Strip that supports the fighting ability of Hamas. If it comes to the price of inconvenience for the population, so be it. The influential former diplomat Danny Ayalon, who served as Israel's former deputy foreign minister and former ambassador of Israel to the United States, said in an interview with Al Jazeera, that there's endless space for Gaza's civilians in Egypt's Sinai Desert and that they should all be moved there. Quote, the idea is, and this is not the first time it will be done, the idea is for them to leave over to the open areas where we and the international community will prepare the infrastructure, tent cities, with food and with water. Meanwhile, the Israeli military dropped leaflets all across the northern parts of the Gaza Strip, ordering Palestinian civilians to vacate their homes and all public shelters and move to a so-called humanitarian aid zone.
that is close to the Rafah crossing with Egypt. The views of Israeli officials that Palestinians are less than human and should be destroyed were promoted by the 95-year-old Israeli army reservist Ezra Yachin, who was reportedly called for his reserve duty to, quote, boost morale ahead of any ground incursions, and while dressed in military fatigues, declared in a clip widely circulated on social media that has more than 2.2 million views, speaking to other soldiers in statements aimed at inciting others to act. Quote, Be triumphant and finish them off and don't leave anyone behind. Erase the memory of them. Erase them, their families, mothers, and children. These animals can no longer live. Every Jew with a weapon should go out and kill them. If you have an Arab neighbor, don't wait. Go to his home and shoot him. We want to invade, not like before. We want to enter and destroy what's in front of us and destroy houses, then destroy the ones after it. With all of our forces, complete destruction, enter and destroy. As you can see, we will witness things we've never dreamed of. Let them drop bombs on them and erase them. Yachin was a member of the Zionist Lehi unit involved in the above-referenced Deir Yassin massacre. The number of Palestinians killed had risen to at least 1,843. At least 7,088 Palestinians had been injured and 423,000 displaced. Despite Israel announcing a safe route for civilians to evacuate from the Gaza to the south, journalists in Gaza reported that Israeli forces, quote, targeted ambulances, cars, and buses of people seeking safety. Israeli airstrikes bombed three convoys carrying Palestinian evacuees to southern Gaza, killing 70, the majority of whom were women and children. Both the Forensic Architecture Investigative Unit at Palestinian Human Rights Organization Al-Haq and the BBC used aerial photos and social media posts to geolocate the site of a strike by the Israeli army on a convoy of vehicles carrying civilians fleeing airstrikes in Gaza. Seventy people in the convoy died in the strike while traveling on Salah al-Din Road, one of the two roads that the Israeli army had previously identified as a safe route south. Many Palestinians chose not to heed the Israeli evacuation orders, deeming them a trick, especially after the designated safe route was bombed. Between October 7 and 13, the World Health Organization had documented 37 attacks resulting in the killing of healthcare workers and damage to 13 healthcare facilities and at least 15 ambulances. Such targeted attacks of humanitarian and medical assistance have further restricted life-saving assistance, including to emergency obstetric and newborn care. As reports of a ground operation circulated, Palestinians in Gaza started circulating statements with their wills, self-written eulogies, and goodbyes, knowing of their impending death and reflecting the serious mental harm they experienced. On October 13, U.S. Defense Secretary Austin traveled to Israel to meet with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant, and the Israeli War Cabinet. He proclaimed that the Pentagon was prepared to deploy additional U.S. military aid to Israel, further explaining that, quote, munitions, air defense capabilities, and other equipment and resources were already rapidly flowing to Israel. Additionally, Secretary Austin and Israeli Defense Minister Yov Gallant held a joint press conference in which Israeli Defense Minister Gallant said, quote, 
I briefed the Secretary on strategic developments in our region, and the Chief of Staff, together with the IDF leadership, shared our operations. Defense cooperation and U.S. support in the Pentagon, in the White House, in the Congress, ensure freedom of operation and enforce our capabilities. In fact, today we will receive the second aircraft carrying essential munition to the IDF. U.S. deployment of assets on land, in air, and at sea sends a strong message to both partners and enemies in the region. On behalf of Israel's defense establishment and on behalf of our citizens, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much. Secretary Austin, when asked about the likelihood of civilian casualties in Gaza as Israeli troops prepare to mount a major ground assault there, responded that, quote, Israel had the right to defend itself and maintain that Israel forces are professional, they are disciplined, and they are focused on the right things. On October 14, Israeli Minister Gideon Saar, who is part of the War Cabinet, stated that the Gaza Strip, quote, must be smaller at the end of the war, and evincing both intention and no fear in announcing that the intention, that intention to the international community would cause it to lose support, that, quote, we must make the end of our campaign clear to everyone around us. Zippy Navon, a close advisor and office manager for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's wife, Sarah Netanyahu, publicly called on Israel to torture Palestinians in Gaza. Quote, We keep saying to flatten Gaza, flatten Gaza, and I think that's not enough. It won't calm the storm of emotions. It won't dull the intensity of the rage and pain that can't find an outlet for them. She proposed that the people of Gaza should be captured and tortured one by one, by pulling out their nails and skinning them alive, and that men's genitals should be cut off, fried, and fed to the captured. Israel commanded the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, PRCS, Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City to evacuate, initially setting a first deadline of 6 a.m. PRCS refused to comply with the order as it was offering life-saving services to a large number of Palestinian patients and wounded, including critical cases in the intensive care unit and children in incubators. The World Health Organization, WHO, warned that Israel's evacuation orders to the 22 hospitals in northern Gaza is a death sentence for over 2,000 inpatients, including newborns in incubators, women with pregnancy complications, and other Palestinians in critical condition requiring intensive care, life support, and hemodialysis. In addition to the injured, tens of thousands of displaced Palestinians are sheltering in or around hospitals, treating them as havens from violence and protecting the facilities from potential attacks. By October 14, Israel launched over 6,000 bombs over Gaza, the equivalent to a, quote, quarter of a nuclear bomb killing at least 2,370 Palestinians, including at least 721 children and 390 women. Specifically, on what was the eighth day of its military assault in Gaza, Israel killed at least 14 Palestinians every hour and annihilated entire family lines, killing all the living generations of 45 families, entirely wiping them from the Gaza Civil Registry. Israel continued to bomb civilians, injuring 9,250 Palestinians and destroying at least 2,650 residential buildings, 71 schools, 145 industrial facilities, 61 media headquarters, 18 mosques, and severely damaging approximately 70,000 residential units and dozens of ancient churches and mosques.
820,000 Palestinians have been displaced, more than half after Israeli air raids demolished or damaged their homes. UNRWA issued a statement urging Israeli officials to protect civilian life. Quote, UNRWA shelters in Gaza and northern Gaza are no longer safe. This is unprecedented. On October 14, the UNRWA Commission General, Commissioner General warned that Palestinians were at risk of dying from severe dehydration due to Israel's complete siege on Gaza. The electricity blackout, which has been sustained since October 11, has strained the water supply, and after Israel threatened to bomb Egypt, aid trucks attempting to deliver essential supplies, including fuel, which is desperately needed to make water available to the more than 2 million people in Gaza. No humanitarian aid assistance has been able to or permitted to enter. Salah al-Din Road, one of the two roads the Israeli army identified as a safe route to evacuate to southern Gaza, was bombed, killing 70. Still, on October 14, President Biden, quote, spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu to reiterate unwavering U.S. support for Israel. The same day, the Pentagon announced that the deployment of a second carrier strike group, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower strike group, which includes a guided missile cruiser and two guided missile destroyers, and U.S. Air Forces Central announced deploying fighter jets and ground attack jets to the region. On October 15, Prime Minister Netanyahu stated that the entire nation is behind Israel's soldiers who, quote, understand the scope of the mission and stand ready to defeat the bloodthirsty monsters who have risen against Israel to destroy us. The Israeli military announced its intention to target Gaza City, the most populous center of Gaza. Israeli military hostilities have so far killed over 2,670 Palestinians, including 724 children and more than 47 families, made up of 500 Palestinians who have been entirely wiped off of the Gaza Civil Registry. 9,600 have been injured. Nearly 1 million Palestinians have already been displaced. Secretary Blinken announced on October 15 that, quote, We will stand with Israel today, tomorrow, and every day, and we're doing that in word and also in deed. He added, we've backed that up, not only with words that we're saying, but with what we're actually doing, including the deployment of U.S. aircraft carrier battle groups. October 16, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, during remarks he made on October 16, stated, quote, this is a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle. This assertion was made the day the death count of Palestinian children surpassed 1,000. On October 16, UNWA cautioned that, quote, Concerns over dehydration and waterborne diseases are high given the collapse of water and sanitation services, including today's shutdown of Gaza's last functioning seawater desalinization plant. While one line of water had been turned on for three hours only in the south of the Gaza Strip, UNRWA stressed that this development, quote, does not solve the urgent water needs given that only 14% of the population in the Strip benefited from this three-hour opening of the water line. First-hand testimony on October 16 from people living in Gaza confirmed the drastically deteriorating situation with access to potable water, food, and other supplies. By October 16, Israeli hostilities had killed at least 2,670 and injured 9,600. One million Palestinians in Gaza had been displaced. 
and 1,000 were reported to be missing, believed to be buried under rubble. Despite Israel's order for Palestinians in Gaza to evacuate to southern Gaza, Israeli air forces continued striking Khan Yunus and other southern areas. Quote, Overnight airstrikes were the heaviest yet, and the bombing carried out throughout the day, according to one resident in Khan Yunus. We were inside the house when we found bodies scattering, flying in the air, bodies of children who have nothing to do with war. On October 16, it was reported that Secretary Austin has ordered 2,000 U.S. military troops, quote, to prepare to deploy in support of Israel, an action which has added an additional layer of support and backing of Israel. According to Department of Defense Deputy uh, Press Secretary Sabrina Singh, quote, since leaving Israel, Secretary Austin has held calls with Minister of Defense Gallant on a near-daily basis and will likely have another call today, declaring that we are working to meet Israel's needs, which include air defense, precision-guided munitions, artillery, and medical supplies. The same day, Secretary Blinken held a seven-hour meeting with Israeli War Cabinet. The White House announced that President Biden will make an extraordinary wartime trip to Israel to reassert Israel's, quote, right and duty to defend itself and demonstrate his steadfast support for the country. Four findings. Applying the facts as set out in Section 3 to the law as explained in Section 2, we make the following findings. A. Israel's responsibility for genocide. Based on the foregoing statements and actions undertaken by current and former Israeli officials and the deadly impact, serious physical and mental harm, and intention and increasing effect of conditions imposed calculated to bring about the physical destruction of the Palestinian population under siege in Gaza, there is a plausible and credible case that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinian population in Gaza as a significant part of the overall Palestinian population as a protected group. The statements by Israeli officials, former officials, and Israeli citizens whose remarks have received wide attention because of their prominence have repeatedly and consistently dehumanized the Palestinian population in Gaza, labeling the entire population as enemy, terrorists, or human animals, and called for it to be punished, attacked without any limitations or distinctions on the targets, and, quote, cleared. Indeed, certain statements made clear that the goal was destruction, whether by an unprecedented bombing campaign or a humanitarian crisis. Clear inference of genocide can be drawn not only from the words used, but also by the fact that they have been followed up with actions aimed at achieving the goal, such as a siege and closure that is creating the conditions of life to bring about the destruction of the group in whole or in part, by cutting off food, water, electricity, and fuel for the entire Palestinian population in Gaza. The resulting denial of access to health care due to lack of fuel and electricity, as well as the bombing of medical staff, ambulances, multiple medical facilities, and hospitals. The denial of safety by bombing civilians and civilian infrastructure, including apartment buildings resulting in the killing of entire families and at least 3,000 Palestinians, including at least 1,030 children, the bombing of schools, religious sites, and critical infrastructure, 
and giving orders for mass evacuations in short periods of time in a closed area under bombardment, causing terror across the population, and in a context where such displacement is understood and, as intended, to be permanent. Terror or serious mental harm is also caused by bombing places after declaring them safe, such as the safe route that Israeli army designated when instructing people to flee, or places that are expected to be safe and where civilians take refuge, like schools and hospitals. Many Israeli officials make clear that the entire population of Gaza is the object of the attack, and although some Israeli officials invoke Hamas as a pur purported object, the collective nature of the attack against the entire territory of Gaza, with its population of more than 2.2 million people, necessarily implicates the entire Palestinian population as the target. That nearly half of the people killed to date are children, and where half of the total population currently being subjected to no electricity, no food, no fuel in the context of a mass bombardment is under 18, is a clear indicator that the object of Israel's campaign of destruction is not limited, but is rather the population as a whole. In this sense, the civilian population of Gaza is being singled out for attack under the current military bombardment and siege, with the only purported justification by some for this attack being that they share the same territorial space or political sympathy with Hamas and have the goal of ending the siege and occupation. Accordingly, Israel has met the elements of the crime of, at minimum, attempt to commit genocide, and there is a plausible and credible case that the elements are met for genocide. Through the statements and actions of the Israeli government, it is made clear that the Palestinian civilian population of the Gaza Strip, the group, is the intended target of Israel's siege and bombardment campaign. Israel and its officials demonstrate the intention to destroy the Palestinian population in Gaza through the following actions. 1. A siege and closure that is creating the conditions of life to bring about the destruction of the group in whole or in part by systematically expelling members of the group from their homes and creating circumstances that would lead to a slow death such as the lack of proper housing, water, shelter, clothing, hygiene, sanitation, or proper food while attacking or denying medical care. 2. A bombing campaign of civilians and civilian infrastructure causing the death of thousands of Palestinians, nearly half of whom are children. And 3. By causing serious bodily or mental harm to Palestinians in Gaza, including through the trauma and injuries caused by continual bombing campaign across the Gaza Strip, and the orders to evacuate, which are not only impossible to comply with in the time and space, but also in a context where such displacement is understood as intended to be permanent. B. The United States' failure in its duty to prevent genocide. Since October 7, 2023, the United States and its senior officials up to and including President Biden have made no statements calling on Israel to cease its attack on the Palestinian population in Gaza, and through their actions have demonstrated no effort to use its considerable and incomparable influence to deter acts that underlie genocide. On the contrary, U.S. officials have offered encouragement, support, and affirmation of the campaign, that Israel has undertaken, while reportedly preventing their diplomats from speaking of a ceasefire. 
As Secretary Blinken reiterated in his address to Netanyahu during his trip to the Middle East on October 12th, even after five days of siege and unrelenting bombing on Gaza, including the use of white phosphorus bombs that apparently had been provided by the United States, with the UN warning, among others, of additional mass casualties due to the cutoff of basic necessities like food, water, fuel, and electricity, quote, we will always be there by your side. The United States bears a responsibility for failing to comply with its obligations to prevent genocide against the Palestinian population in occupied Gaza. It failed to take any measures to deter Israel's actions since first learning of the serious risk of genocide, including by Israeli Defense Minister dehumanizing statement of a total siege, quote, no electricity, no food, no fuel, everything is closed on the Palestinian population of Gaza on October 9. The United States and Israel have strong political links, as both parties have consistently asserted, across multiple administrations and governments, and reaffirmed without qualification since October 7, 2023. The United States has the ability to exercise influence on the state of Israel, as evidenced by the long-term and unbreakable political, economic, diplomatic, and military links, and the significant amount of military assistance it provides, the largest to any country in the world which it chooses to not condition. An example of the United States' clear ability to influence Israel's actions in the current war was when, after nearly a week of cutting off basic necessities to life to the 2.2 million people in Gaza, Israeli Minister of Energy Israel Katz told reporters that the decision to resume water supply to southern Gaza was made during the call between Netanyahu and Biden. It is also evidenced by the near-daily communications between Israel and U.S. officials in which the United States offers continued support, not calls to change course. Instead of using its influence to call on Israel to end the siege on and bombing of the Palestinian population in Gaza, particularly after statements by Israeli officials made their intent to try to destroy, if not achieve, the destruction of the Palestinian population in Gaza evident, the United States continued to offer Israel unconditional support. All states should take notice of their duty to prevent genocide and take all measures to forestall the commission of genocide, that the duty to prevent incurs state responsibility, and that a claim can be brought before the International Court of Justice for breaching the obligation to prevent genocide. Because of the affirmative steps the United States has taken to aid or assist Israel, its breaches of international law must also be assessed as complicity in genocide. C. U.S. Complicity in Genocide Since October 7, 2023, the United States and its senior officials, up to and including President Biden, offered to supply, quote, all appropriate means of support and did in fact supply material aid and assistance to Israel to further its military campaign in and siege of Gaza. The United States provided munitions, military equipment, fighter jets, and other material assistance, while also moving two aircraft carriers with heavily armed strike groups into the area, with the pledge to urgently, quote, get Israel what it needs in support of its campaign against Gaza. This aid and the daily pledges of unqualified and unconditioned support have been made with full knowledge of Israeli statements and Israel's action 
from which genocidal intent against the Palestinian civil population can be inferred as set out in Findings Section A. Senior U.S. officials have made trips to Israel to discuss the forms of support Israel needs, including military and diplomatic. They have been in continual contact with senior Israeli officials, with discussions happening regularly at the level of President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu, with the visit planned between the two for October 18. At no point has the United States called on Israel to cease its siege and bombardment campaign against the Palestinian population in Gaza. Furthermore, and critically, the material assistance and pledges of assistance and encouragement have never diminished and, in fact, continued after Israeli officials clearly stated the goal of subjecting the entire civilian population of Palestine to conditions of life intended to destroy the group in whole or in part through the killing of Palestinians by indiscriminate bombardment, including after the death toll of children surpassed 1,000. It continued after the deprivation of the most essential necessities to sustain human life reached the point where the Palestinian population was largely without food, water, electricity, and fuel, with the attendant devastating impacts on their access to medical assistance and health. Two critical junctures serve to demonstrate how during each moment of escalation carried out by Israeli occupying forces, the United States remained resolute in its diplomatic, political, and military aid, assistance, and support of Israel. On October 9, Israeli Minister of Defense Gallant ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip, using dehumanizing language to describe the Palestinian population by announcing, quote, There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we act accordingly. President Biden's reaction was a pledge to provide Israel, quote, what it needs, and repeating disinformation and propaganda, while remaining silent about Israel's killing of over 900 Palestinians, including at least 260 children, as well as healthcare workers and journalists, its injuring of more than 4,600 Palestinians, and the warning by the United, Station, United Nations that 400,000 Palestinians in Gaza did not have running water due to the damage sustained by Israeli airstrikes and actions. Then, as Israel issued its evacuation order to 1.1 million Palestinians under bombardment and under a full closure order and siege on October 12th, Secretary Blinken publicly said that the United States, quote, will always be there by your side during a press conference in Israel and declared that the United States would continue to provide material support to Israel, including ammunition. Secretary of Defense Austin also confirmed that the U.S. was working urgently to get Israel what it needs, including munitions. Neither U.S. official offered any rebuke to the evacuation order or concern for the deaths, serious physical or mental harm, or conditions of life it would impose on the Palestinian population. Instead, with the knowledge of Israel's action, the United States pledged to increase ammunition and other military support, affirmed again on October 13 when Secretary of Defense Austin was in Israel. Indeed, Secretary of State Blinken made clear that these were not simply empty pledges. Quote, We've backed that up not only with the words that we're saying, but with what we're actually doing, including the deployment of U.S. aircraft carrier battle groups. Accordingly, 
there is a plausible and credible case to be made that the United States' actions to further the Israeli military operation, closure, and campaign against the Palestinian population in Gaza, with knowledge of Israel's intention to destroy the Palestinian population in Gaza through killings, causing serious mental and physical harm, and creating conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, rise to the level of complicity in genocide. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Uh, remember, you can go to youcan'tbeneutral.com where you'll find all of the back episodes. Um, if you want to get those episodes via social media, you can follow me in the Fediverse at Moving Train Media at Collectiva.social. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. <laughs>